Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 254. The purpose of argument is not victory, but progress. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Fred Simeon. Fred, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I have my three-point harness on. All right, great. Fred Simeon is the founder and executive director of the Simeon Foundation Automotive Museum, located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The museum opened in June of 2008 in an old engine remanufacturing building. They refurbished it, and the 80,000-square-foot building now houses an incredible collection of over 65 racing sports cars that encompass the words of John Stuart Mill, competition is indispensable to progress. You'll enjoy marks including Alfa Romeo, Porsche, Ferrari, Aston Martin, and Delahaye, just to name a few. At the museum, you'll enjoy seven decades of the spirit of competition, plus rotating exhibits that keep you coming back for more. Fred is a retired neurosurgeon who donated the cars to a charitable foundation that survives on events and philanthropy. So Fred, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Please take a moment and share some more about the museum and your passion for automobiles. Well, my passion for automobiles clearly started from my dad. Dad was a local uh, kind of general practitioner, had his office in our home. We were uh, never very um, very wealthy. Uh, we went to public schools, and he had a lot of time for his son, however. He uh, would uh, take me on house calls in the days of house calls, and then after the house calls were done, we would stop by junkyards. And decades ago, junkyards still had cars from the 30s and 40s in them, so we were always looking for that, that treasure that uh, might be available, and occasionally we found one or two. But when you get an interest at that early age, it sticks with you. And what I learned from Dad was the importance of cars, evaluating them, uh, studying style, design, and technology. So by the time I was even pre-teen, I had a keen sense that automobiles were something important and certainly very interesting. Well, you were very fortunate in many senses of the word. And as you went through your career as a physician, 
Were you collecting cars during all that time, or did that come a little bit later? Well, I became a neurosurgeon and had to travel about different places to get my training. So neurosurgeon doesn't get his first few bucks, spendable bucks, until he's well into his 30s. Mm-hmm. But that's when I started. I started collecting in my early 30s and started really just collecting things that I thought were significant historically. And I might remind you that the collection is based entirely on historical significance, as well as technical and stylistic significance. In other words, these were not random cars, cars that were in grandmom's garage, (laughs) the cars that were cheaper cars that were in the neighborhood. They were all selected because I felt they had a significant place in history. Your collection of cars is, in many cases, for people like myself who enjoy sports cars, have raced vintage cars, a dream come true because the breadth and depth of these automobiles is absolutely mind-boggling to me. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote. It's a saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Fred, take the wheel. Well, I think for a, um, a success code... I got from a fortune cookie. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and that, Yeah, it just has to do with how you deal with controversy and deal with people in your life. And the quote is, the purpose of argument is not victory, but progress. Wow. Well, how have you incorporated that quote into your life, your business, and your passion for cars? Well, I'll give you another one for that I made myself for passion for cars. But All right. But let's talk about that. You know, in dealing with people uh, in negotiations, and one of the hardest things to sell, even though I made it clear that I I never was in business. I never had a business. In my younger days, I went to school, summer school, worried about scholarships and not about income. And then when I became a neurosurgeon, I just worried about seeing patients and doing uh, procedures. We never build patients individually, so someone sent bills to insurance company. They came in, and I was really separate from that. I just went from one procedure to the other, from one patient to the next, and I was happy doing that. There, were, there was absolutely no business interest. Hmm. Never sold anything, never bought anything for resale. Mm-hmm. But in dealing with people, and, and in, I guess one thing you do sell is an operation, and selling a brain operation is not an easy sale. Oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> you can imagine. And what I learned was um, in dealing with people, and especially if there was resistance, friendly resistance, or in other cases, unfriendly resistance, that to try to win an argument all at once and to try to decimate uh, the other person in the argument, or even in a legal situation to try to I try to decimate an adversary, that doesn't work. I think you make progress a little bit at a time and in the process of argument, friendly, most of them were friendly or otherwise, try to make a few inroads. What I commonly see is somebody wants to make his point all at once and he wants to relinquish very little of his point, and that generally doesn't work. So I, I put that on my refrigerator <laughs> when I open that fortune cookie and I look at it every once in a while, it reminds me. I'll repeat it. The, the purpose of argument is not victory, but progress. 
Well, I love that because communication is such an important part of our lives and proper communication, of course, is even more important, whether it's business, relationships, services, buying and selling automobiles, or running a museum. Does this quote have some relevance to you in the museum operation? Well, no, because there's no argument in the museum. Remember, the museum, as I have it, is a charity. Mm -hmm. Everything is basically free. In other words, once I accumulated my collection, I gave it to a charity. Mm -hmm. So I don't own it anymore. That's why it's not a business. There's no business where everything you collect and save and work for, then you give away. That's not a typical business characterization. So there's very little argument. I go through life just meeting people and telling the cars. I do worry constantly and incessantly about supporting it, particularly after I'm gone, but that's not argument either. But the, the automotive quote that, that came out myself when I was lecturing, and I'm frequently asked to lecture about how do you accumulate a collection like this? Mm-hmm. Well, as you will see, and as already see, the collection evolved from passion. It didn't evolve from any business protocol or business sense. It evolved from studying what you thought was important and then working to get that. And uh, once while giving this lecture there, when they said, how did you get these cars? Uh, I came out with this and I repeated it. And I said, the bargain is not what you pay for an important car. The bargain is the opportunity to buy it. Mm, I love that. And that's why when I knew that a car was important, that that my historical studies and observation said this is a once in a lifetime situation i just found a way to buy it Fantastic. Uh, many times i didn't have the cash sometimes uh, as you may learn later on i traded cars that i didn't want to trade but they were my only way to be able to close the deal mm-hmm. i never traded and you'll ask me this question later i never traded a car that was absolutely pivotal to the theme of the collection but I did trade some nice, wonderful cars that I bought because they were just great, but they were not sports racing cars. I see. Very, very interesting and very insightful. You talked about those days running around with your father, going to junkyards, looking at cars, but could you share with us a story that instigated your passion for cars? Was there a pivotal moment in your life when you really realized you were a car guy? Uh, You know... Because of my dad and because of how early I started, and if you if you study people who have uh, a persistent interest that uh, they are very, very uh, attached to or intense about, those interests often came before their teen years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. There are, kids will, will be something as simple as collecting stamps or following a certain sport. Well, the way I grew up, I, first of all, I had a dad who, who even when later on, when I could afford to buy things, he never discouraged me from buying a car. <laughs> he would make it. Usually, your dad says, "Don't spend that money on that old car." <laughs> but he, but he would, he didn't make it sound like a bad thing at all. Oh, wonderful! There's a story out there that was just published when I bought my three thousand dollar Mercedes Gullwing. <laughs> um, and on the used car lot in the bad section of town where I grew up, believe it or not, there, one, there was another uh, Mercedes Gullwing wow. on the used car lot. And I said, Dad, there's another Gullwing on Jerry's lot. He said, yeah. He said, 
do we need another one? I said, well, you know, it's a really great car. He said, well, then let's get it. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. That's why I, I and, and I loved them both, and that's why I now have two beautiful um, low-mileage uh, Mercedes Gullwings. Oh, so my kind of an interesting dad. He had very little spending money, uh, He, but he had a lot of a lot of passion and a lot of time for his kids. Well, it sounds like he understood the passion that you had inside you as well, so you're very he, fortunate. He gave it to me. <laughs> it was Even more so. in the genetics passed along. Right. I hear that quite often. Fred, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you've faced along the way, perhaps something that had to do with the museum or your collection of cars. But more importantly, how did you overcome that situation and what did you learn from it? Well, the, the only um, challenge I've had with the museum is the one you would expect, which all museums have is it's a charity, and we just don't have the income to keep it uh, going. I mean, we have rent to pay, liability, uh, some salaries. I have a library. We have to keep going. And, and you know, we're always in the red, and I worry constantly how I'm going to make it survive. So that challenge doesn't have an answer. Mm-hmm. In other words, it isn't completed, and it has not been, it has not been successful. I guess the personal challenge I have was when I was given a very prestigious uh, chairmanship of a department of neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. And that's the highest honor because there's only about 70 or so neurosurgical programs in the country. Yes. By the program, I mean where they train residents and where they, you know, the very prestigious places. They're like, like the senator would be. Mm-hmm. And I had one of those. And while I was running it, one of uh, the one of my staff committed a felony. Oh no! And um, I reported it as I should to the you know, to the council of the university, mm-hmm. and they proceeded to say, "Well, we can't let this out. This has to be. Uh, we have to change this." They said, "Of course, the the individuals who are involved the in, in the felony reported it to the newspapers. The newspapers were calling." and asking to talk to me, and I said I can only tell them the truth about what happened, and they said, well, you can't do that. Mm. You have to tell them this, 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 and this, mm-hmm. and I refused, and I was fired. Oh, goodness. Which was tough, you know. And yes. Because when you're fired as a department chairman, it's like you know, being fired as a senator or as a congressman. So right. that was really tough. Fortunately, uh, the place where I trained and where I received my my neurosurgical training and was on the faculty for a while before I was appointed to this this other chairmanship, recognized that on the basis of what they had known about me before that that didn't make any sense, and I returned back to where I trained. Wow. Well, but, uh, amazing. That's, that, was the big, that was the only really big failing. Mm-hmm. And I don't call it a failing because no. I, if you look carefully at why people get into trouble, whether it's... Uh, President Nixon, Bill Clinton, or lately Tom Brady, it's the cover-up that hurts them. Yes, absolutely. And I don't want to be involved in cover-up. So that's, that was, a, if covering up, failure to covering up is a failing, then that's what I was guilty of. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing that very personal story. Uh, you obviously took the right path, the right journey, and uh, 
I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Wow. Well, Fred, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those aha moments. I like to call it a time when the headlights come on and illuminate your way for a new direction or an idea that you had. And I'd love for you to to tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into your success. Well, what happens is um, it started by history. Uh, In other words, my interest in cars was driven by history. I'm a driver, a rider. It was always about sports car racing. I did some vintage racing, although when you're a neurosurgeon and you have people in the intensive care unit, you can't leave. So mm-hmm. I never could go to Wat- out here at uh, Watkins Glen or Bridgehampton. Could never could go to those very much because I couldn't leave the city. Yes. And I was always in the city, and even though I wasn't intensely busy on weekends, my business, busyness related to repairing cars and driving them for fun and then studying about them. So the aha moment came when I, I didn't know anything about investing in stocks and bonds. I always thought that that took expertise. And then I found out the experts were bank were managers, and these managers were getting paid whether or not they were successful. <laughs> yes. And then I learned, as you probably learned, that if you invest in an index fund, which just is a broad, unmanaged category of stocks, you do just about as well as a managed fund, and sometimes better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and those data are so clear now that many, say, union, union funds are with index uh, accounts, not managers. So... I said, look, I don't know stocks, bonds, I don't know oil or car, but I do know cars. So my investment vehicle was cars, Mm. which is an easy sell because I love them. (laughs) So uh, whenever I got a few bucks, I would invest in a car. And the aha moment was I put these, I put the important cars of the, of, of history. And these were, by the way, all sports racing, road racing cars. Mm-hmm. Very, very specific. Not Formula One, not open wheel cars, and even when they got to be muscle cars that weren't road racing cars, even that, you know, these were these were winning top level sports racing cars. And I put them all on uh, on I had refrigerator magnets and I would put the cars that I thought were important and periodically I would take take the magnet off when I got the car. <laughs> and the aha moment was um I had all these cars, they were in a garage, not available very much because they were parked in to the public, and then as they started to come, for instance, out your way, um, the Peterson Museum, you know, has a, a checkered flag club, uh, you may you, yes. you, maybe uh-huh. you know about that. Yeah. And the checkered flag club says, you know, we're coming east and we want to see your collection. And then somebody else would say, we want to see your collection. And then every once in a while I would hear, you know, with those cars that you have, you have an obligation to show them. Mm. And before I knew it, the collection had morphed from a fun thing to do for, with my respect for the, the hobby. Mm-hmm. And I knew, even though it wasn't a business, I knew I wouldn't lose on the cars that I bought. And I never could say that about a stock or a bond. Yes. But then it became that. I said, well, if people think this is an obligation and that's good, I have to put them in a place where everybody can come and see them, Mm. not just the checkered flag club where I was embarrassed to bring them into my smelly, the the gas-smelling garage and these (laughs) fancy guys from the West Coast 
yeah. uh, were not surrounded by beauty, but they immediately forgot that you know when they saw the cars. Yes. So the aha moment was I have to build a museum, and the second aha moment was and I can't own the cars and build a museum because mm. if I do, when I pass on, Uncle Sam will take yep. away half of them with uh, state taxes. Yes. Oh. So well. aha, I got to build a museum, <laughs> and aha, I got to make it a charity. Yes. Well, so many people that have visited your museum and people like myself that will visit your museum someday are so happy that you've done that because the collection is absolutely outstanding. How about proudest moments? I assume you've had many in your life, but is there one in particular that stands out for you? God, I don't know. That's Most of them are medical. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know how proud I should be. I get different kinds of awards for the collection. Mm-hmm. I've written a couple of books that were, I don't know whether you know the International Historic Motoring Awards. I don't know whether you know what that is, but the it's the Academy Awards of the automobile history world. Mm, yes. There's the Academy Awards and they're giving once a year in London. Mm-hmm. And they're giving given Academy Awards style where there's a list of five finalists for each category and you have to show up there not knowing that you're going to win in, in your black tie. There you go. That's exactly how it's done. And we have won um, the award more than any other museum in the world. We won it for Museum of the Year, Best Museum, Best Book, and Best Car. Wow. So, uh, yeah, no one will ever do that again because not every museum writes books and not every museum has cars of that level. So I was proud of that. I guess personally uh, I was knighted by the Italian government about a year and a half ago, it's called Cavalieri, mm-hmm. but that was for uh, that was for um, medical work. So I guess those are the automotive and personal things that would answer that question. Absolutely. Well, congratulations. Let's have a little fun here. You had so many cars in your life. This may be very difficult, but what was your first really special vehicle? Really, really special. Yes. Um, yeah, and maybe a memory that you had with that car. Something that in your early years you really wanted to have and you finally were able to acquire it. Well, you see, you're defining, there's two ways to define special. <laughs> special in terms of its international recognition and value or special in what it meant to me. Special to you, I think, is the most important thing here, yes. Yeah, well, it was a car that's got a murky history and because it was my dad's, my dad always worried about me getting on the road. (laughs) You know know how it is if you've had a kid. I mean, when when I put my daughter in the car for the first time and gave her the keys, you know what that's like? I know exactly what that's like. (laughs) My dad never got over that. And I and I was dying to have a car of my own, and I wanted. And, and by then, he already knew. When I was sixteen, he already knew he couldn't just buy me a regular car. He, he, that wouldn't work. So <laughs> no. he found a really beat up a twenty five hundred Alpha. Oh and, wow! And the reason he gave me that, he said, "Son, if you want to drive, you got to fix this car up yourself and make it run." Which I guess was a good lesson. Yes. But it also kept me off the road for a year and a half. <laughs> Very which is smart what he man. Wanted, I think. <laughs> yes. He never. He never voiced that. No. <laughs> and so it's it's a quirky looking kind of reprobate twenty five hundred Alpha, which I um, restored myself, uh, and it's why it still doesn't run. 
<laughs> uh, and then I tried to, and then I then I disliked it so much because it always let me down, and nobody could fix it. I just kept it in the garage in this bad part of town that we were, hoping that someday somebody would steal it. <laughs> and then when I opened the museum, it, the car had now become camp. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It was like cool looking again, so we yeah. brought it in the museum. <laughs> Very cool. And that, that's that's the one that has the most early meaning for me. Yeah. Oh, wonderful story. I appreciate that. Now, you probably let a lot of vehicles go, sold a lot of vehicles over your life, but is there one in particular that you really wish you could have back in the garage? Well, you use the word sold. <laughs> I never remember. I told you I'm not in business mm-hmm. until... I started to have you know, financial troubles here at the museum. I never bought a car for resale. Mm-hmm. Since uh, since I'm looking for ways to get funds for the museum, I did buy a couple of cars for resale, and inevitably it was a bad choice. Mm-hmm. I say, boy, this thing is going to do great at auction, and then it went to auction, and it, I got my bunny back at best. Yeah. So I never I never bought a car for resale. I did, however, pick up some really wonderful cars. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say this. I invariably traded them because they were not sports racing cars, but I invariably traded them for something that fit the collection. Mm-hmm. Now, the sad thing is because of the increase in value, even though I traded them for much better cars and cars that are even nowadays much more valuable, the values that I put on them when I traded them were, by modern standards, ridiculously low. Mm-hmm. However, the cars that I have gotten in trade have increased as much, so I really can't complain. But there were some <laughs> very, very special cars uh, that uh, I had to get rid of in order to get something else. Is there one in particular you can you can share with our listeners well, that stands out? I had I had a three two nine Alphas. I know that's funny. But I had three two nine alphas. Two of them were out and out race cars. Mm-hmm. One won the one my and you'll ask me this later, but my, my favorite car won the millimedia in nineteen thirty eight. Another one came in second in nineteen thirty seven. Mm. And the third one was a beautiful long chassis spider. Oh. You know, the beautiful long chassis yes. soaring yes. body spider. The car came along that I had to have and I couldn't afford it and i I made a swap. Mm-hmm. Your question is probably, what did you swap for? <laughs> sure. And it was a, a DBR1 Aston Martin. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> one of only four that were made. Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So that was a good trade yes. as far as I'm concerned. I think you d- you did just fine. <laughs> How about a vehicle that you purchased and soon after thought to yourself, what was I thinking? I never got rid of a car that I bought for any other reason than to trade. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't I can't say I can't even think of one. My philosophy has been consistent so uh there wouldn't be any car that fit those criteria. Well, you're a fortunate man. How about current projects? Is there something you're working on there at the museum right now that really has you excited and fired up? Yeah, you know, um what I've learned uh, sadly is that people aren't going to keep coming back here to see these cars even though we're Museum of the Year and all that. So we're constantly changing the theme. Right now, we have 20 racing sobs in the museum. Mm. And the theme is, of course, racing sobs. We got some racing sobs from all over the country. A wonderful exhibit. We had a nice small crowd of sob enthusiasts for the launch party. 
but then, you know, I went walked around the museum today. It's the second or third day of the Saab, and there's no more people here than the ordinary, relatively small crowd that we have. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm remissioning, and part of my mission was um, uh, driver education for teenagers. So ah, I'm excited about the programs that we have. We're, we're studying new philosophies of driver safety because there's no unanimity as to how to teach kids to drive in the beginning. It goes mm-hmm. from everything from simulators, which some people say are wonderful and other people say are a waste of time, mm-hmm. to actually driving the school. The thing that's fascinated me the most is if you look at what works, and I'm strictly a results-oriented guy, you'll see that what causes people, kids to have accidents is distracted driving. Yes. Which is the leading cause now of... Uh, of uh, traffic, I used. We don't use the word accidents in the news. We use the word uh, crashes. Yes. We guys at this level of the driver education thing thinks accident implies something that you couldn't help. Mm-hmm. But not. They're not. They're crashes. Right. They're the commonest cause of crashes now. So we're trying to get more information about how we can teach kids not to drive distractedly. One of the guys who helps us. Uh, with this and whose ideas we use, uh, believes that the kids learn distracted driving from their parents, mm. so that this type of driver education should start. Anyway, to have a long answer to your question is, we'd like to get involved in driver education, and we'd also, you remember you mentioned the spirit of competition, mm-hmm. we'd also like to show the same teenagers that competition is an inevitable part of life, and as they go through the cars placed chronologically in the contention, Yes. Watching them gra- gradually evolve into things that are prettier, faster. Maybe they'll understand that competition is a part of their life. Because, in my opinion, the young American male, and I say male because women are doing pretty damn good nowadays, <laughs> the young American male somehow has lost the idea that competition is a necessary part of progress. Yes. Or he may have lost the concept of progress, but clearly. As I watch medical students and as I watch teenagers, they don't seem to have the same desire to compete and get ahead, especially inner-city kids, mm-hmm. than you know, going out and playing ball every day after school, getting great grades, getting good grades is okay, getting great grades. We need, we're need. we 12th in the world in, in science um, and mathematics scores, things like that, that uh, I'd like to use the collection somehow to change that. Well, bravo. Excellent, perfect cause. I think that's fantastic. Here's a very introspective question for you, Fred. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? Well, I can't separate that question from the car that I love. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know what I'm trying to say. It's I do. very <laughs> kind of like, let's say you uh, were a movie fan and you liked the uh, Sharon Stone, mm-hmm. and she was your favorite actress. And then you've asked me a question. If you were to meet a girl, what would she look like? You would immediately <laughs> say Sharon Stone. Yes. You can't think of anything better. Okay. <laughs> and I can't think of anything better than the 1938 Alpha that won the Oh, <laughs> Very I mean, I, nice. I put that on a turntable, and I'll go out here in the lonely day when I'm in the museum by alone, and I'll get a nice big sandwich and a drink and turn the turntable on and just watch it go around. 
Yes, <laughs> marvelous. It, it's gorgeous from every view. Plus, which double overhead valves, double overhead cams, transaxle, independent four wheel suspension adjustable from the seat. Wow, yes. 120 miles an hour. <laughs> I took it to Italy four times and raced the Millimedia. All those things make. So the answer to your question, which might be, what's your favorite car? And the answer to, if you were a car, what you want to be, the answer is the same. I guess for some people it could be different. Yes. But for me, they're the same. Fantastic. Well, Fred, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to our Cars Yeah sponsor. Award-winning author and designer Dwight Knowlton has done it again. His book, The Greatest Race, is now available. The Greatest Race is the story of Sir Sterling Moss's epic and record-crushing win of the 1955 Mille Miglia in the Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR. In collaboration with Sir Sterling Moss himself, Dwight has created a wonderful children's book from this epic race as a follow-up to his best-selling book, The Little Red Racing Car. I have my own copy of The Greatest Race, and I can tell you, this kid's impressed. Like his previous book, this one is printed in the USA. Check out Dwight's Carpe Viem brand, where you can find both of his books, shirts, and more that embrace his seize-the-road philosophy. Enjoy Carpe Viem at carpegear.com, and be sure to sign up for his newsletter while you're at his website. That's carpegear.com, C-A-R-P-E-Gear.com. Okay, Fred, we're back, and we're entering the last lap, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? When contemplating a purchase of a great car, the bargain is not the price you pay, but the opportunity to buy it. Perfect. Could you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success over the years? In the automobile world, is uh, originality is more important than anything else. And if a car is preserved and original, you should get it if it's an important car. And if it's preserved and original, you should not change it except to make it more original. Do you have a resource that you think the Cars Yeah listeners would enjoy? I hate to say this, but uh, it's not the one you think, and that would be eBay. Ah, (laughs) yes. Because eBay has been a remarkable source uh, for me of information, parts, and other things that I never thought would be available. Yes. I'll, I'll give you a quick I'll give you a quick uh, response. I know you want a quick answer, but this is hard to believe. Yes. I have a baby Bugatti of which they only made a hundred of. Mm-hmm. These were the small version of Type 35 that Ettore Bugatti made for kids. And I had I got this car from an estate, and it didn't have these tiny inflatable French tires that are so much important on an open wheel car. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking on the phone, I'm having a very boring con- conversation, and I'm tapping in Baby Bugatti and on eBay, and there it was, four tires <laughs> for a Type 52 Bugatti, of which only about 100 were made. Incredible. <laughs> can you imagine how happy that was? I can only imagine. Yes, eBay is just phenomenal. It's incredible to it, me. The things I've found there, the things I've sold there, it's just mind-boggling. Yes, very cool. Would you share a book that you believe the Cars Yeah listeners would really enjoy reading? Does it have to be a car book? No, it doesn't. Yeah, because the book that changed my life is a book called Methods of Inquiry. And it has to do with, it's a logic book 
but it has to do how we evaluate information mm. and how we determine information that we get. Uh, and I'll give you a quick example. Methods of inquiry tells you how to evaluate things, what, what people tell you, what your own exper- experimental information is. Mm-hmm. One thing I've learned, and I hope I don't offend any listeners or maybe even you, but one thing I've learned is the public relations world is about a bunch of theories that have not been proved by any objective method, mm. like a billboard. Mm-hmm. I can't find data on whether a billboard sells anything. Mm-hmm. I can't find data whether an annoying little gecko with a <laughs> Australian accent sells insurance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, P- but PR people will come along and say, oh, you got to be on television, you got to do this, you got to do that. And it must be true because if you're paying a million dollars for 30 seconds on Super Bowl ad, everybody says it must be real, but there are no metrics to make you understand, figure out whether it's real. It's you just have to take their faith. And in my experience, they've been close to worthless uh, mm. in terms of being able to determine whether an advertisement or other PR device will work. Methods of inquiry tells you how to evaluate results and how to be a results-oriented person, which is something I think is an important an important lesson. Do you recall the author of that book? It was His name was Church. Church, um, okay. I, I forget his first name, but it's an old book. I got it in uh, college, so it's probably it's many years old. Well, listeners, you can find links to these resources at carsyeah.com slash Fred Simeon. Just go to the search bar, put Fred's name in, and his show notes page will pop right up. All right, Fred, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question, I think, could be a real doozy for someone like you, but maybe not. You've kind of maybe already answered this. You have so many cars, but if you could only have one in your garage, which car would that be and why? You're right. I answered it, and I gave you all the reasons (laughs) when I answered it with the 1938 millimeter winning uh, Alpha 2900B. Very nice. And I mean, I say that, I mean, I just want you to know, we have, and I'll brag a little bit because it's germane to your question, we have the first automobile ever inducted into the National Historic Registry. Yes, the Daytona Coupe. (laughs) You would think that would be your favorite, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the pizzazz. It doesn't have all the other things, you know. Yeah, well, we'll make sure uh, your fellow Cars Yeah guest, Peter Brock, doesn't get upset over that comment. Sorry, yeah. Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I have great respect for Peter, yes. and I, uh, and I think he was a genius. Yes, for designing that car, and he really is a design genius, and he did it when he was young. Yes, very um, young. <laughs> Fred, you have taken me on a great ride today. I knew you would. That's why I wanted to have you as my guest here on Cars. Yeah, and I've so enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yeah listeners and with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Alpha? This is very absolute. Sadly, the automobile business has, or the automobile hobby has become a business to many people. And and the motivations not infrequently include what car should I buy that I could keep for a while and make a profit. Mm-hmm. And, they've, and the advice is the only profit you're sure to make is if you love the car and enjoyed it. Because if you sell it for more or less than you paid for it, if you'd enjoyed it, you're still ahead. (laughs) I love it. Fantastic. Very well spoken. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and the museum? 
very simple. It's www.simeonemuseum, S-I-M-E-O-N-E museum dot O-R-G. Perfect. And I would encourage our listeners to please check out the museum if you can't make it there physically. The pictures are beautiful. The information is extensive. And the collection is beyond your wildest imagination. Listeners, you can, again, find links to everything we've talked about here on Fred's show notes page at carsyad.com. Just put Fred in the search box and his show notes page will pop right up. Fred, thank you again for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and, and for sharing your life experiences with me and the listeners. It's been magnificent. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.